can have a seat. Thank you so much for being here. Why don't you turn to the person on your right and say, thanks for being here. Tell the person on your left, I'm hungry, and I hope this goes fast. I'm going to turn your Bible to John chapter 19, John chapter 19. Starting next week, we're going to begin to unlock and walk through the book of 1 John. But we had a few weeks, and so I thought it would be helpful if we got to know John, the author of that book of the Bible, a little bit. And so that's what we did two weeks ago. That's what we're doing again today by looking at the Gospel of John to just kind of prepare us to walk through the book of 1 John, starting next week all the way through Christmas. Uh, Right before Christmas, we'll finish the book. And here's what we've learned as we've gone to the Gospel of John, that he never refers to himself. He doesn't say, and John did this. He doesn't say, and I did this. Uh, He refers to himself four times towards the end of the Gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And here's what we're going to do today. We're actually going to do something today. We're not just going to read something. We're not just going to learn something. We're actually going to try to accomplish something. And here's what it is. We are going to take spiritual responsibility for someone besides ourselves. That's what we're actively going to do. So by the end of this morning, you hopefully are going to say, think about a few people, think to yourself, I am spiritually going to take responsibility for these people, which is not something that we do in our culture. Mostly we want to avoid taking responsibility with people. Really the only people we'll claim responsibility for is our little children, right? Because we can control them through threats and punishments. Right? The older that they get, the less those threats and punishments work. And so we even like to distance ourselves from like what our teenagers do. Well, you know, they're teenagers. What am I going to say now? And, and so we want to distance ourselves from responsibility of someone else's life. But we're actually going to see in the scripture that this is a good thing. I mean, we see it all the way through. Specifically, we see Jesus taking responsibility for his disciples. We see the Apostle Paul taking responsibility for the churches. Uh, we see uh, in Acts chapter 9, a lady named Tabitha taking responsibility for the uh, widows of a town called Joppa. We see Barnabas taking responsibility for John Mark, and we're going to see a very powerful illustration of this idea in John chapter 19. Jesus is on the cross. I want to set the stage for us so that we have the adequate weight by the time we get there. So we're going to start in the beginning. In the beginning, God created everything, the heavens and the earth. In six days, He created everything. On the seventh day, He rested in that window, he made humanity and, and he built into that creation our ability to choose between right and wrong. Adam and Eve, they made their choice. They chose wrong. They took the fruit when they shouldn't have taken the fruit. And now sin is being replicated, being reproduced in humanity. But God doesn't turn his back on people. He loves people and he's going to send a, a savior. He's going to send a rescuer to atone for our sin. He sends these prophets to tell about this rescuer, this savior. And when it came time for that savior to appear, what does he do? Does he send an agent? Does he send an angel? Does he send a messenger? No, he sends his one 
and only Son, His only begotten. Jesus is born. He shows us the way of the kingdom of God. He shows us where we made sinful choices. He made sinless choices. He lived with righteousness, but He didn't just come to live with righteousness and show us what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. He came to atone for our sin, and so when it came time for that, He had one last supper with His disciples, and then they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and the weight of the world literally falls on His shoulders. A mob comes, arrests him, start beating him. In a span of just a few hours, he's tried by three different courts. Eventually sentenced to death by crucifixion. Which crucifixion, you may know, is, is not just a form of death. It's a form of torture. They wanted to extend your pain as long as possible. It was inhumane. Their goal was to execute you slowly. And the way they started that was not on the cross. They started that painfully slow death by beating Jesus within a whisper of death. And then they made him carry his own cross outside of the city of Jerusalem and up onto a hill because they like to crucify people outside of the city and on a hill so that visitors coming into that city would see this is what happens if you fail to follow our laws and Roman rule. And Jesus carries his cross all the way on top of this hill outside of the city of Jerusalem and they lay him on it and they put nails in his hands and they put nails on his feet and they hang him in the noonday sun and then he begins to slowly suffocate. And because of that suffocation, he's only able to get out seven different statements from the cross. We're reading one of these statements today, verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother... And his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. So four women present at the cross with Jesus, along with John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, this is a scene that is horrifically tender, isn't it? It's tender. Jesus is taking care of his mother. He's arranging for her future and her care. At the same time, it's horrific because as he's caring for her, as he's looking out for her, he's bleeding, bloody, and dying. I think it's shows us that Jesus is able to be both cosmic and personal. I mean, he's taking away the sins of the world in this moment. Literally, your sin and my sin on his shoulders, on this cross. It's cosmic action, global action, worldwide action. And at the same time, he's very personally taking care of his mother. I think we wrestle with this in in a season like this in our history, right? With everything that's going on in Iraq and the Middle East. You have Ebola happening in Africa. and, And it feels like God should be diverting all of his attention in that direction. But then like your kids started school this week, right? And you wanted to pray for them because you wanted them to behave and not embarrass you. And learn things along the way, of course. But but you're praying that they have an amazing year. And that mostly they are obedient to the people that are asking them to do things. And it feels weird, right? To, to pray for something so small like that and something so personal and really something that only matters to you at the same time that all this global stuff is going on it doesn't really seem that right does it because it seemed like the more important things could get uh, the most attention it's like when you're in the er 
right? Maybe you cut your finger and you're not sure whether you need stitches or not. And, and so you go and really what you want to do is you want to show it to the nurse and go, uh, do I need stitches? But they don't do that, right? Because they need to diagnose you fully. But you know, as soon as they put your name in that little computer there, it's minimum $150. And, and so you're really, I just want to answer, but they're like, no. And so you're waiting in the emergency room and you have to wait a long time because that's just the part of it. If you want to start an emergency room business, you need to just start getting really, really slow at everything. And and, and here comes somebody with a gunshot wound, and you're like, well, I guess they're going to get first because gunshot wound, right? And they go ahead of you, and then somebody comes in, and they're having a heart attack, and that's definitely more important than, than your finger. But here comes somebody with food poisoning, and you're like, I've had food poisoning before, and they're going to survive, and so I'd really like to go before them. Because that's the way it works in an emergency room. Those who need the most urgent care get the quickest care. And I think that bleeds into our prayers like God is giving most of his attention to the big stuff. How does he have room for our little stuff and our personal stuff? But here, this picture of Mary being taken care of by Jesus on the cross, it shows us that he he doesn't have to divert attention away from something else to give it to you. You don't have to stand in line to be heard. He is both cosmic and very personal at the same time. And he gives responsibility to John. Take care of my mother. And he says to Mary, this is your, your son. The question is, is, is who are you going to take responsibility for today? I think there are three things that I would love for you to write down that will help us dig in to this idea. Number one, the qualification for spiritual responsibility is faithfulness. The qualification for spiritual responsibility is faithfulness. Look at verse 26. It says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. Now that word standing nearby, we just gloss over it, but it's important for us to know that this proximity is costly for John. He's standing near the cross, but it, it took a lot of work to get there. See, about 18 hours before this scene, everything is perfect in John's world. He's followed Jesus. Jesus is looking like the Messiah, the Savior sent by God. Jesus is going into Jerusalem. Where do kings live? Kings live in capitals. Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. This is great. They're going to get to be close to the king. But then things start to change. They're they're having this Passover meal together. It's great. But then they go to the Garden of Gethsemane afterwards. And Jesus starts amping up his level of intensity to like a 10 And he leaves most of the disciples in one place. And he says to Peter, James, and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, come with me. And he says, I want you to help me pray. Pray with me. And Jesus goes on a little bit further. And and they probably started praying. And and then they fell asleep. And Jesus comes back and he catches them asleep. And they're like, my bad, my bad on that. Uh, You know, and he's like, pray with me, stand with me. And they're like, we're with you all the way. And he goes and they fall asleep again. And here comes Jesus again. "What, What are you doing? My fault. Two times. My fault. And they fall asleep again. And in the midst of that, here comes this mob that the Bible says is bearing lanterns and torches and weapons. They've come to arrest Jesus. And as they're arresting him, the disciples, they're gone, including John. It's every man for himself. But John and Peter, they, they love Jesus and they're with him. They weren't with him in the garden, but they want to be with him. And so they sneak back into Jerusalem to one of the places where Jesus is being tried. And John knows somebody in the court. And so he gets to go in all the way. Peter has to stand in the courtyard. And as he's in that courtyard, somebody goes, Hey, 
you're Peter. You, you're with Jesus. And he's like, no, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Somebody else a little bit later, yeah, I'm pretty sure that, that I've seen you with him. No, I'm, I don't know what you're talking about. And the third time, I, I know that you're with him. I've seen it, and you are from the same area that Jesus is from. And he says, I, I, I don't even know this man, and curses and runs away. So by the time, a few hours later, Jesus is being crucified, only John is left. Was John the most qualified to take care of Jesus' mother? We don't know that. We don't know if John ever got married. We don't know if he was the wealthiest of all the disciples. All we know is that when Jesus looked around, John was the only one standing there. His faithfulness is what qualified him. Because this is good news for us, because you may be thinking, well, I don't want to take spiritual responsibility for anybody because I can barely take spiritual responsibility for myself. And honestly, I'm not that spiritual all the time. So to take responsibility not only for myself, but for somebody else, I I don't know that I'm qualified to do that. You may be even thinking, listen, I'm the only Christian on my street, and and I pray for my neighbors sometimes. I even invite them to church sometimes, but hardly anybody ever takes me up on that. In fact, no one has ever taken me up on that. But, But listen, never underestimate the power of consistent faithfulness. Yeah, one Sunday, you hurting your children out into the car or hurting your husband into the car through threats and punishment to get him here, you backing out and driving down the street may not mean that much to your neighbors. But listen, Sunday after Sunday, month after month, year after year, that consistent faithfulness is, has an influence and power that's hard to resist. I remember when I was a kid, I loved to spend the night at my grandparents' house. Probably spent the night at their house hundreds of times in my lifetime. And every, every time, uh, when it was bedtime, it was kind of the same routine. I would go into the bathroom that was closest to their bedroom and brush my teeth and do that. And I would always have to walk by their bedroom door. And, and I would look in, and it was the same scene literally every time. My grandfather laying in the bed with his Bible open, reading it before he would go to sleep. And there would be my grandma, super skinny, about four foot nothing, looked like a stick, uh, on her little bony knees with her bony elbows up on the bed in total grandma style, praying before she went to bed. I literally saw that scene hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Now, never once, never once did I finish brushing my teeth and go into the bedroom where I would stay. Did my grandma rush in and go, Curtis, you're never going to believe this. I was praying and revival's happening. We're going to have a huge prayer meeting right now. Come on into the bedroom. It's going to be amazing. Not once did that ever happen. Not one time did my grandpa rush in just as I was getting to bed. He says, Curtis, you're never going to believe this. I was reading in Matthew chapter 17, and God said this, and this is what God is telling you. Let's go and let's study the Bible all night long. Not one time did that ever happen. But the power of night after night, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade of consistent faithfulness is powerful. You may be like, I don't feel qualified to take spiritual responsibility for anybody. Listen, can you just keep showing up? Can you show up when everybody else runs away? Can you keep showing up when everyone else is afraid? Your faithfulness, not your talent, is what qualifies you to be a worker in the kingdom of God. Second thing I'd love for you to write down, the spiritually responsible forge spiritual bonds. The spiritually responsible forge 
spiritual bonds. And listen, Mary had other sons. And we know their names. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, who is also known as Jude. And technically, listen, technically, care for Mary should have gone to whichever of those brothers was the oldest, probably James. In their culture, that's the way it worked. It was hard to be a widow if you were not connected to a man. Um, then it was hard for you to earn your own income in that culture. And so it was very important for Mary to come underneath somebody's household. She had been underneath Jesus's wing of care and protection, and now she needed to go under somebody else's. And in their culture, it should have been one of these other brothers. And yet Jesus does not entrust her to any of his brothers. Why? Well, we know from John chapter 7 that they didn't believe in him. They would one day after his resurrection, they are going to believe in him. And even by the beginning of Acts chapter 1, they're with their mother and the early church there. But at this moment, when Jesus is dying on the cross, they don't yet believe in him. Also, Jesus had a kind of a different view on what a family was. I want to show you two places, uh, Matthew chapter 10 and Mark chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 and Mark chapter 10. Or excuse me, Matthew chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 12. It says in verse 34, Jesus speaking, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now this sounds like anti-Jesus, does it? This sounds like something that Jesus would definitely not say. If I had pulled this out and printed it on a piece of paper and said, Did Jesus say this? If you weren't If you hadn't read it before, you would go, no way. There's no way that Jesus would actually say it. Because what is he saying? He's saying, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring conflict. And I came to set people who are normally moving in one direction. I've come to set them against each other. So they're moving in opposite directions. What is Jesus talking about? Well, he clarifies in verse 37, focuses it a little for us. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Of me. So what he's saying, he's saying not that you need to love your mom less or your dad less or your kids less. He's just saying your loyalty goes to one place and one place only. Goes to Jesus. He's elevating that loyalty above all other loyalty. He says next, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now that phrase, whoever finds his life will lose it, it literally means whoever finds his life will completely lose it or will destroy it. Which seems like a weird thing today to say. I think this warns us a little bit uh, in our culture here in Cypress, Texas. I I think it would be real easy for us to, to say and believe, my family is my life. You maybe even heard people say that, right? Because you can't be honest and say, my job is my life, that I love working. Even if that's true, you know you're not allowed to say something like that. You can't say, golf is my life, or my hobbies are my life, or fishing is my life, or hunting is my life. You, you may think that, but you, if you want to be married, you can't say that out loud. It's just a rule. If you want your kids to love you and care about you, then you're, you have to say, my family is my life. And listen, even some of us believe it. My family is my life. And this warns us right here, don't do that. Don't do that. Because whoever finds his life 
will lose it, will completely lose it. In fact, whoever finds his life will destroy it. And what it says to us is anything other than Jesus will not be able to bear the weight of our purpose. Meaning, if your family is really your life, that they are the reason for your existence, your life's purpose will be such a burden to them that you will actually lose those relationships instead of keeping them close. Like, I, I want to give just a little warning to, to those of us who have small children. Now, if you have older children and you've raised your children, I would love for you to speak into this, not at this moment because that would be weird. Um, but at another more appropriate moment. But for those of us who have young children, I think we need to be very careful about letting our children's activities dictate the terms of our family lifestyle. And we get into that by accident, right? Because we love our children and our family is our life. And so our kids want to do this. And we're like, we're going to do this. And if we're going to do it, we're going to do it right. Well, our kids also want to do this. And so let's do it. And then our kids also want to do this. And And we say yes to those things. Why? Because we're bad people? No, because we have mixed up priorities? No, because our family is our life. But then what happens is, is there going to come a moment in your children's life, whether it's when they're 12 or 15 or 18, at some point they're going to need you to step up and be mom and dad. Not chauffeur, not the person who provides for me and says yes to me. They're going to need you to be mom and dad, and they're going to need you to say no. That's not what we're doing as a family. They're not going to want you to do that, but they're going to want you and need you to do that. But if you've let their lives dictate the terms of your family from their earliest days to that moment, you won't have enough credibility to step in and be mom and dad because their stuff has been the boss of the family their whole lives. And listen, by your family being your life in that way of saying yes to them all the time, they will end up resenting you because what they needed was a mom and dad and not just a yes man. And you started out by just trying to bring your family closer together But because they were your life's purpose, it ended up pulling them apart. And you lost what had been your life. But Christ is our life, and he's able to bear the weight of our life purpose. Now I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 12, just a page over. Jesus is reprioritizing loyalty. He's saying maybe family isn't what we should be the most loyal to loyal to Matthew chapter 12 says this in verse 46 while he was still speaking to people behold his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him but he replied to the man who told him who is my mother and who are my brothers and stretching out his hand toward his disciples he said here are my mother and my brothers whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother now you can imagine how this would hurt your feelings if you were Jesus's mom And Jesus, in this chapter, Matthew chapter 12, is saying some pretty intense things. He's already called a group of people a brood of vipers. And listen, listen, this was not like he put it out on the internet. Like the people that he's calling that are in the room. So you can imagine how awkward that is. It would be like, you know, you guys over here in the right, brood of vipers, you need to get your act together. I just feel how like awkward that would be. He's already done that. He's talked about the sign of Jonah three days in the belly of the whale. I mean, he's just talking about some pretty random and weird and intense stuff. And so his mother and brothers at a different place in Mark have 
believe that Jesus was out of his mind. And so it's okay for us to take that because it's a similar time frame and read a little bit of that into this story. What they're doing is they're going, hey, Jesus, can we talk to you for just a second? Let me pull you over aside over here. You're wonderful, amazing, great. Love your teaching ministry. You're at a 10 right now. I need you to bring it down to a five. <laughs> Love what you're saying. Not a super huge fan of the way that you're saying it. You're kind of embarrassing us. And listen, more importantly, you're kind of embarrassing yourself. I need you to bring it down a little bit. And Jesus goes, who's my mother and my father and my brothers? And says, who's my family? Except those who do the will of my father. What he's telling us is there is a bond that is stronger than blood. It's faith. And that faith bond, that spiritual bond, needs to be forged in every relationship that you have, especially those who you're taking responsibility for. Listen, you want a strong marriage? A strong marriage commitment is not built on a moment where one person says, I do, and another person says, I do. It's built on a foundation that says, I believe in Jesus, and I believe in Jesus, we believe in Jesus. You want the strongest bond with your children? It's not going to come by shared activities. It's not going to come by you saying yes all the time. It's not going to come by you saying no all the time either. It's going to come by raising your children in such a way where you're able to say as they mature into adulthood, I believe in Jesus. And they say, I believe in Jesus. And you can say as a family, we believe in Jesus. That spiritual bond is the strongest bond. And for those that we are taking spiritual responsibility of, we want to forge that bond and relationship wherever we can. So what that means, it means that those people that God is going to entrust to you, you pray for them. You pray for them. That forges that spiritual relationship. Now listen, it doesn't mean that you know you pray for them and then you show up at work the next day and you'll be like, hey, just want you to know, prayed for you. That might be weird and awkward. Don't do that. But there may come a moment where they're going through something and you can let them know, hey, I just want you to know, God put this on my heart a while ago. I've been praying for you. Pray for them. And invite them into your life. Let them see your faith, just like Jesus did. With Peter, James, and John, he's going to raise a little girl from the dead, but he invites them into that moment, just those three. Invite them in. Let them see. Invite them to join you. Hey, hey, I, I like to serve at my church out in the parking lot. I'd love for you to come and help with me. I, I like to volunteer in the kids' ministry. I'd love for you to see that. We're, we're going to go and pack lunches for, or we're going to go and pack meals for kids in South America. We'll come and be a part of that. Invite them in. Let them join you and have spiritual conversations where you can. This forges that spiritual bond. It, it's the strongest bond, and that's what John has at the foot of the cross with Mary. They have a shared faith that Jesus' brothers didn't have, and that's why he entrusts her to John and not to them. And then the last thing I'd love for you to write down, spiritual responsibility will crush you. Spiritual responsibility will crush you if you cannot remember that you are loved. I mean, look at how it goes. When Jesus saw his mother... And look at this, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. Listen, if you're going to take spiritual responsibility 
for someone besides yourself, you're going to need to remember that you are loved by Jesus because you're not able to control those people who you take responsibility for, and they are not going to be able to give you what you need in the terms of gratitude and affirmation. You know, we love to be in relationships where it's like, I care about you and love you if I know that you will care about me and love me in return. Those are our favorite relationships, aren't they? And it just feels right. If I got to provide for you and love you and have compassion on you, then I just should expect that same thing in return. But here's the deal. We don't always get that, do we? And it feels awful to be in a one-way relationship of any kind. Like take, for example, this week I was uh, messing with one of our vehicles, getting it inspected, oil changed, car washed, the whole nine yards. And I was at one of those places where they do all that. And then they give you a free car wash and they send it through, you know, and you can sit and watch it come through, through the glass. And so I've been there a long time because I was doing all this stuff there. And so I've, I've got my work stuff out. I got my Bible out. I got my computer out. I got my notebook out and, and I'm just working, working, working. And And out of the corner of my eye, I see an old family friend. I haven't seen her in a long time. And, and, uh, and so I kind of look out of the corner of my eye and I turn around and I'm making sure it's her. I can't see 100% because she's on the phone, but I know it's her. And so I wave real big, like big, like, how you been? Been great to see you. I'm not doing any kind of vocal thing because she's on the phone and I have good manners, but, but I'm making it known that I see her and I'm happy that I'm getting to see her. And, uh, and she doesn't wave back. And so I, you know, I was like, you know, that's weird. And, and I wasn't wearing my glasses. And so I strained my eyes as much as I could. And yeah, I didn't have any idea who she was. And uh, total stranger. And it was so awkward, you know, because not only am I waving real big, like, you know, it's a moment. I've got my Bible out and just all my stuff. So I just look like total freak show. There's one way to get to her car and, and she goes like the back door exit. Like she doesn't even, she goes backwards in the thing. That's how awkward it was. And that's what it feels like, right? When you are one side of the relationship and the other person doesn't reciprocate. And, and we try to avoid relationships like that. In fact, some of us have withdrawn from people because they've never given us the affirmation that we think we deserve from them. So we think, well, if I'm not going to get that kind of gratitude for you, then, from you, then I'm not even going to bother. But listen, if you're waiting for someone else's gratitude to be fuel for you, you'll be pulled over to the side of the road before your journey even begins. And that's why you have to know if you're going to take spiritual responsibility for somebody else that you are loved by God because they're not always going to come back and say, I love you and I appreciate you and I'm really thankful for you. They're not going to give you the consistent gratitude and affirmation that you're going to need. And so if you're going to keep being responsible for them in the way that God is asking you to, you're going to need to know they don't act like they love me very much. And that's okay because I am a disciple whom Jesus loves. About ten and a half years ago, Amanda and I got on an airplane and headed over to England. I had just graduated from college. We had been married for about a year and a half. and We were taking this real short five to six month ministry assignment. We were going to work in this really small church in northern England and help 
begin and start a ministry among teenagers. Now, you may be thinking like these beautiful pictures of England and it's Mary Poppins and Alice in Wonderland, but it was actually like the opposite of that. But it didn't matter. I mean, we just had dreams and visions. I mean, when we landed in Manchester, I just, you know, I knew that local revival among teenagers was already like in the books, like that had happened. What I was questioning is whether that revival would spread down to London and then to the whole world. Is, is, that's how grand my dreams and visions for the ministry that we were going to, I mean, it was just going to be amazing. And so we drive a couple of hours to the, the town where we're going to be living in. And within a very short window, we meet one of the two teenagers that they have in this church, just two. We meet one of them, and then we never see her again. It was hard to not take that personal. You know, they've had no ministry. Ministers show up, and they don't want to come around anymore. That's a little weird. Kind of hurt my feelings, if I'm being a little honest. And so we started this amazing ministry with one teenager. And we thought, well, what do we do? to bring teenagers into the church. Let's start a Wednesday night Bible study. The only room at the church that was really conducive was the nursery. And that wasn't going to do. So we would show up early on a Wednesday. We'd move out all the nursery stuff. We'd make that room as cool as we possibly can, meaning we would hide all the cribs and the baby toys. And we would wait for teenagers to show up. On a good Wednesday, we had four. And we could guarantee four because we would go and pick them up and put them in our car. (laughs) We worked hard to get into the local schools because the local school does religious education. And and so we went in and met with the teachers. We're like, hey, we can talk about the Christian part of that. And and she liked us. She was from New Zealand, and she uh, loved to say, this is my friends, Curtis and Amanda from Texas. and, uh, and so we, we got to go in there. And then at, at one point, about halfway through our time, uh, we brought a team from America over and they were going to help us. And so they just canvassed the whole town. They talked to every teenager in that school and we invited all of them to come back on Wednesday night to our Wednesday night Bible study. And so that Wednesday night, we showed up early. We turned the nursery into a room that was sort of conducive for teenagers and And then we got in our car and we began to go and pick up our normal four. And when we got back into the churchyard, there were kids everywhere. Everywhere. And I'm thinking, this is it, man. This, this is it. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of all those dreams and visions. And it was awful. (laughs) Stuff got stolen. I was assaulted by one of the teenagers, and she was very strong. <laughs> For real, she was strong. I ain't going to lie to you. She was strong. I manned up, though. It was a disaster. And the next week, we were back to our four. And I remember thinking, why did you drag us all the way over here? Because that's what it feels like when the things we volunteer to do don't go well. We, we forget that we volunteered for it and we just blame God for putting us in that position. Like, why did you drag us all the way over here? And I remember very clearly him saying, you came for the masses, but I sent you for a handful. And will you give the same energy and faith and prayer and commitment 
to the handful that you would give to the masses. And we said, okay. And I would love to tell you that revival broke out and we started seeing an uptick in our attendance. And we did. We went from four to five. And then we got on an airplane and went home. The question is, is, uh, will you be faithful with your handful? Right now, Jesus has said to you, there are people that I love very much. There are people that I care about very much, and I love them so much that I'm entrusting them to you. Underneath your care of spiritual responsibility, will you steward your handful well? You're like, well, I don't know who my handful is. What do I have to go home and start scrolling through my Facebook? No, they're already in your life right now. Your, your handful is in your home right now. Your handful is somewhere on your street. Your handful is somewhere in your work. Your handful is somewhere in those old acquaintances. They're already right in front of you. And what Jesus is just asking for you to do is not go and look for new people, but will you take spiritual responsibility of the people he's already brought you? Can't promise you the fruit. Can't promise you the results. But will you take responsibility? Will you be faithful with the people that he's entrusted to your care? Why don't you stand to your feet? We're going to finish our service as we do every Sunday with the time of ministry.